0: and socially significant. We go now to the pulpit of Mayflower Congregational UCC Church of Oklahoma City and to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie.
1: Good morning. I am Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, and it is my honor to welcome you to Mayflower Congregational United Church of Christ where no matter who you are or where you are on life's journey, You are welcome here. Will you bow your heads with me? Tomorrow's the day, holy one. The first day of the second session of the 59th Oklahoma Legislature. House members filed more than 1,200 bills, and the Senate added over 840. As one headline summed it up, our elected officials will be debating pensions, prescriptions, and pot, among other things. We confess that our instinct is to start by tattling. After all, while session begins tomorrow, they've already been fighting for a week. The governor tried to force a cut in the state income tax in a special session, but the Senate said it was too soon to know if the state could afford it. And all of that posturing It costs $34,000 a year's salary for a teacher. Is this how it's going to be for the next four months? But the thing is, we don't have the luxury of just complaining. The stakes are too high, our children are not okay, our teachers are not okay, our retirees are not okay, families are having a hard time making ends meet. So to model what it looks like to put our best foot forward, we'll start this session by praying for our siblings under the dome. May they think on whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. Help them to lift up the lowly and fill the hungry with good things. Grant them the courage to send the rich away empty, given that those bank accounts are already full. Let their minds be changed by science-based evidence. Keep them sober as they tend to the significant work before them. We ask the same for ourselves. Holy One. All of us need all of us to make it. We pray in the name of love itself, which hasn't failed us yet. Amen. Our scripture lesson this morning comes from the book of Jonah, chapter 3, verse 10, through chapter 4, verse 11. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their wicked ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Oh, Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, uh, is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give him shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose... God prepared a sultry east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush For which you did not labor, and which you did not grow, it came into being in a night, and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than a hundred and twenty thousand persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also many animals? Here ends the reading from our tradition. May God grant to us wisdom and courage for interpretation. We begin where we ended two Sundays ago. Jonah chapter 3 verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed God's mind about the calamity that God had said God would bring upon them and God did not do it. It is a surprising ending, in a way. Other Bible stories with similar plot lines did not turn out so pleasantly. Sodom and Gomorrah come to mind. They were warned. They did not repent. They did not turn from their wicked ways. And they were destroyed when God rained down sulfur and fire. We pause here for a moment to note that the demise of Sodom and Gomorrah is often used as clobber verses against homosexuality. You've heard it, Um, although those conclusions are not actually drawn from scripture itself. So we must take time to correct the narrative. Biblical illiteracy is real, dangerous, and sometimes deadly. It is the responsibility of every Christian and especially of straight Christians to make sure the text is not used as a weapon against queer folk. So to that end, the prophet Ezekiel gives us the clearest window into how the memory of Sodom and Gomorrah played itself out in Jewish consciousness. The two ancient cities are used as a measuring stick to describe how bad life had gotten with the Israelite people According to Ezekiel, Jerusalem had become, in the eyes of God, even more detestable and depraved than that old ash heap known as Sodom. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen." So as far as Ezekiel saw it, it was not sexual immorality, let alone homosexuality or same-sex acts that brought down the fire from heaven. According to the prophets, when the Hebrew people thought of Sodom and Gomorrah, they did not think of them in terms of cities that were wicked as a result of men wanting to have sex with other men. No, the sin of Sodom were based on the fact that they had plenty of resources but did not open themselves up to those who were in need. In short, they were notoriously inhospitable. Finally, Jesus himself stood in the Jewish tradition of seeing Sodom and Gomorrah as historical examples of the wickedness of rejecting the outsider. When he sent out his 12 disciples to go from town to town to town, proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom of God, he said, if anyone refuses to welcome you or listen to your words... Shake the dust off your feet as you leave that house or city. I assure you it will be more bearable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah on Judgment Day than it will be for that city. Ancient Israel was uniquely called by God to be a reflection of the Lord back into the world. God was going to bless them so that they could be a blessing to others. They were to operate categorically different from the nations around them, Including, but not limited to, how they opened themselves up to the stranger, the alien, the foreigner, and the immigrant. They were to be a people who embodied hospitality, sought justice for the oppressed, cared for the outcast, and used their abundance to provide for others. So, as we see from the prophets and from Jesus, The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah functioned in the life of Israel as a story to remind them of the dangers of forgetting their calling. If you are interested in reading more about how to take the Bible seriously when it comes to scripture and homosexuality, Colby Martin's book titled Unclobbered is a biblically responsible and accessible start and I'm happy to pass on other book recommendations and articles, too. But back to Nineveh and the surprise ending that the city did not go down in a giant ball of flames. Jonah seems to be the original turn-or-burn preacher. It seems, actually, that his sermon wasn't much longer than that phrase itself. He offered the people an eight-word sermon. We heard it two weeks ago. Eight words, 40 days more, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Eight words, that's it. As we heard two weeks ago, the the people actually listened and responded. They stopped what they were doing. They did an about face. One could not be blamed for thinking that the too-long-didn't-read version of Jonah and the whale is that after Jonah made it to Nineveh, he, he did what God told him to do, the people of Nineveh repented, and everyone lived happily ever after the end. But there's an additional chapter, and what happens after the people repent is, frankly, wildly confusing to preachers. Jonah preached an eight word sermon, which resulted in the repentance of an entire city, King included, which is by definition effective preaching. (laughs) This is the dream. The problem is that effective sermons are not delivered to the preacher's inbox on Sunday mornings. It takes a lot of efforting to craft a sermon. And while we trust that nothing is ever wasted, evidence of effectiveness is rarely as obvious as it is in this case. A preacher's highest hope is that her sermon has been meaningful, of help, worthwhile, beneficial, of value, useful, compelling, all of which seem to be true of Jonah's sermon given the people's response, mission accomplished. God is overjoyed, thrilled, but instead of joining the celebration, God is called a snowflake. Jonah thinks God is soft. This is the text from today. Oh, Lord, it is, is not this exactly what I said Was when I was still in my own country, for I knew that you were a gracious God, Merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and ready to relent from punishing. We can almost see Jonah cross his arms and stomp his feet, working up to a full-blown temper tantrum. In the story, he pouts his way out of the city and plops down in protest. At this point in the story, it is very easy to shake our heads at Jonah. Disappointed that people responded to the call for repentance? Disappointed in God's mercy? Disappointed that there wasn't a fire and brimstone ending? In the list of biggest brats in the Bible, this behavior puts Jonah in the top five at least. And still, God tries to continue the conversation, attempting even a few different strategies, including cajoling and then a little tough love. That was the part about God growing the plant to shade Jonah and then causing it to wither, which makes Jonah even more mad than he already was. God points out that Jonah seems to care more about a withered plant than he does about living people. It turns out God's sermon was not effective. The book does not end with Jonah finally coming around to God's point of view. He does not lead the Ninevites in a rendition of Kumbaya around a campfire. The book ends with Jonah still angry. The book ends with God trying to get Jonah to understand, asking him if the people who do not know their right hand from their left hand should still be shown no mercy. Jonah is silent in his response. We, however, are not silent about judging him for this. Get over yourself, Jonah. Where is your compassion? How disappointing, how unloving. Do better, Jonah. But before we get too morally superior, let us remember that we are reading this story from the white Christian American perspective, from the perspective of a colonizing mindset, whether we realize it or not. Chisung Justin Ryu, a Korean scholar writing from his own collective history of colonization, reminds us Jonah's anger loses its basis when it is uprooted from his historical context. Jonah finds no hope of peace for Israel in the repentance of Nineveh, because remember that bloodthirsty Ninevites had participated in a genocidal destruction of the northern kingdom of Israel, and we were occupying and taxing the southern kingdom. Of course Jonah is angry. Of course he wants Nineveh destroyed before they destroy anything else. It is a very reasonable position for someone who wants to see his people live. Dar- Dr. Margaret Odell drives home the point. Nineveh was the capital of Israel's greatest enemy, Assyria. Nineveh's deliverance in Jonah's lifetime means that it will live to fight another day, so to speak. Mercy, God's steadfast love in this case, leaves open the possibility of Nineveh returning to its wicked ways of causing more terror and fear. It raises questions about what terrible atrocities might be avoided If the city didn't exist, questions like if Nineveh were destroyed, would their empire fall and the violence, destruction, and war come to an end? Would Israel then be safe? Are the lives of those repenting in Nineveh worth more than the suffering and those who would be killed under the Assyrian Empire? Even if Nineveh repents, what about the rest of the Assyrian Empire? The thing is, there's no way to know, not in that moment, not in any given moment, whether transformation is going to happen or let us down, whether change is real and lasting or will fade with the next day's news cycle. Only in hindsight can we know for sure. Joseph, Jonah, finds no hope of peace for Israel in the repentance of Nineveh. I mean, he could be wrong. This could be the birthing of real change and creating something peaceful. But he could also be right. This sparing of Nineveh could turn into a very ugly future for the innocent of many, including those in Israel. If only we could see the future, it would be so much easier to make decisions about how to treat one another. If destruction can be avoided because oppressive rulers actually step down or are removed, let it be. But if oppressive rulers will remain in place forever, Isn't there a time for a kind of destruction that interrupts harm and makes room for new life? In Jonah's anger, he finds delight in a leafy plant provided by God. When God takes this plant away, his anger intensifies and he wishes to die. A single plant, a single plant, its creation and its destruction impacted him greatly. He felt the impact of its life. He felt the impact of its death. And this is a reminder of the interdependence of life. He has also felt the impact of Nineveh's life. And he would also feel the impact of its death and destruction. When destruction is necessary, it is going to hurt everyone in body, in spirit, in material impact. There is no way to burn something terrible down without doing damage to every surrounding thing. Every single life form is connected, and there's no way to destroy even one without a kind of damage to everything, perceivable or not. This is a call not to destroy too quickly, God leans into the repentance of Nineveh, taking a risk on their word, creating an opening for possibility, creating the, and cultivating the necessary ingredients for change. It's a risk we have to take on each other sometimes. Destruction, as the only tool for change, will destroy us all. But to be fair to Jonah, he turned out to be right. Jonah was right. Nineveh's repentance wasn't enough, and it wasn't permanent. Ultimately, Jonah's suspicion was right on, and God's mercy costs so many lives. About a hundred years later, the prophet Nahum is sent by God to the same region all over again. Their repentance did not stick. Their wickedness grew. Under the leadership of Tiglath-Pileser III, their violence would escalate as he brought about the world's first professional military. The world and war and militaries would be forever changed, and Israel would be destroyed. God's judgment would come, but it would be too late to prevent the rise of a violent and bloody empire its great destruction, and the escalation of military tactics that we still see today. How different this story sounded two weeks ago. In the reading of this text from the perspective of those who have been colonized, rather than from a colonizing mindset, it becomes more complicated, but more importantly, it seems all the more relevant. Jonah's silence at the end of the book becomes an invitation to consider that it's dangerous not to listen to those who resist rushing towards forgiveness, and it's also dangerous to be too quick to destroy. It's dangerous to attempt to be impartial. The world is always being changed forever. It's a serious task, discerning when a time is calling for trust and risk or for boundaries and abolishing. It's a serious task to oversimplify what is necessary for a path to new life. So we must engage in urgently and carefully speaking of God's role in the days that are before us and determining our next faithful steps. It is a serious task to commit to the hard work of listening and listening deeply. To borrow the words from our final hymn, teach us, O God, your lessons, As in our daily life, we struggle to be human and search for hope and faith. Teach us to care for people, not just some, but all. To love them as we find them, or as they may become. May it be so. Amen.
0: You've been listening to the preaching and teaching of Reverend Dr. Lori Walkie, senior minister at Mayflower Congregational UCC Church in Oklahoma City. More information about the church can be found at www.mayflowerucc.org or by visiting Mayflower's Facebook page. Worship services are every Sunday at 10 a.m., with Sunday school classes for all ages at 9 a.m. Mayflower is located on Northwest 63rd Street in Oklahoma City, one block west of Portland. Thank you for listening.